Hi, this is Brian Milliken, and you are listening to Chasing Dreams with Amy J. Welcome to Chasing Dreams podcast with Amy J. Amy believes that realizing a life without regrets is achieved by taking chances, chasing your dreams, making moves, and overcoming your doubts. The Chasing Dreams podcast will help you overcome life's obstacles, believe in your potential, and inspire you to face your fears. And now here's the woman who is passionately pursuing her dreams, Amy J. Dream Chasers, this is Amy J, and thank you so much for tuning in to the show and what is an exciting episode, episode number 50 of Chasing Dreams. I can't believe we're here. It's mind-blowing, um, half-centennial, five-zero, whole numbers. I can't believe it. I Very exciting, and I couldn't be here if it wasn't for people like you who are listening and for the wonderful guests I have, including my guest today, who is a friend and writer. His name is Brian Milliken. He was most recently a writer and consulting producer on the hit sci-fi series Haven, as most of you know, my favorite show, based on the book by Stephen King. Brian was on Haven for the entire six years run of the series from the very beginning. He's a native of Richmond, Virginia, and he attended UNC Chapel Hill, and he's a big fan of the sports team there, I believe. Uh, Brian, thank you for coming on this special episode. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, very exciting. And you're from the DMV, which is also very cool. <laughs> uh, that is true. Uh, I'm technically I'm from the RVA, as we call it, uh, Richmond, Virginia. Um, but you know, I what is it? Ninety minutes from Washington D.C. Yeah, you know, I loved it. It was ninety minutes from the beach, ninety minutes from the mountains. We were like ninety minutes. From all the places you'd want to be, mm-hmm. uh, but as it turns out, like that was the place where I was supposed to be. Um, but uh, I love Richmond. I love the Mid Atlantic Coast. I live in Los Angeles now, and I miss that area of the country more than anything. Now, while you were in our area of the country, right? Because now you're kind of in that Hollywoody area. Um, we're not really known on the East Coast for writing or television writing, movie writing. Uh, did you have that in you? From the beginning, or did it kind of develop? Very much so. Uh, from the from the beginning, I guess you know I was I, I'm from the suburbs of uh, Richmond, Virginia, so I, I can't I I can never claim, and I know would I uh, to have had a you know a, a rough and tumble uh, upbringing. I'm from as suburbia as you could imagine. Um, a but, little Pleasantville. Uh, like? That's right. That's right. You know, like uh, the new subdevelopments where there's like eerily no trees because, you know, they just built it and the houses sort of rise like skeletons uh, coming out of the ground. And, you know, there's just like every house that looks exactly the same, uh, just like different colored shutters. Yep. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, I can't complain. And I had uh, all the support from my parents, you know, that I ever could have needed, you know. So I, uh, I, had, I had it lucky. Um, but what happened really was I think it was – third grade there was a contest I, I think this still exists it was in uh, my county Henrico County uh, and it was you know I think also statewide and maybe you know multiple different states it was called young authors and everyone in school was forced to participate 
everyone had to write and illustrate their own like 10, 12 page little book. You know, this is on, of course, you know, like grade school paper that like, you know, extra wide stuff you use before you can get the standard rule paper. Um, my book was called The Wish Machine. I don't know if I like ripped off an episode of The Twilight Zone or something that I was watching at the time, but I wrote a book about a kid who gets a wish machine and then, you know, like he, he wishes for like a new bike and he gets a bike and then he wishes for like a million quarters because he wants to go to like an arcade and, uh, and a million quarters show up. Uh, but the problem is then he finds out like the next day that like, a, you know, like all this money disappeared from a local bank, you know, and, and like so he realizes that it's like not, didn't just come out of thin air. He, whatever he wished for, it's, he's taking it from somebody else. So he destroys the machine and he gives the money back and no one is the wiser. And in the end, he announces that he's going to make a, a homework machine. The end. Let me that, tell you, it was pretty great book. I got to uh, say for third grade, that's um, very detailed. Well, I was, uh, I was already at the time, uh, what was I? I guess that would have been 10 years old. I, you know, I watched pretty much everything uh, to a fault. My parents, God bless them, uh, let me watch whatever I wanted to. And it was usually what like, my older brother was watching or what my parents were watching. Uh, I got in trouble when I was, I think, like six. It was first grade uh, for uh, bringing in a copy of Stand By Me uh, to school. Because uh, it was rated, not R, I think it was PG-13 at the time. Yeah, but, but it's six, it, you know, right? Pretty, pretty grown-up book about kids looking for a dead body. Right. And uh, it was my favorite movie at the time. And I didn't know that you know, other parents and other kids maybe like, weren't cool with that. Uh, it, was, it was tough. I, had, I brought a TV guide in once, I think second grade, and because I was so excited about Big Trouble in Little China, which was going to air that day. And I was parading around. And I guess the, the, the ad is, it was a little risque. risque and yeah. I got it taken from me and I got in trouble. I got in trouble in school. Oh, you were just a little rebel, weren't you? I, but I didn't do anything wrong. I would never hurt anybody. I was just like a nerd who watched everything. And like I, I read stuff too. My mom was a big, again, Stephen King fan. So I got in trouble again years later. I remember for, you know, carrying around uh, It, the big hardback thing that's, you know, looks the size of a doorstop. Uh, and it was like weighing down my backpack. And I think I had it, like left it on my desk. And my fourth grade teacher was like, you know, you're not supposed to have this. And I was like, it's my favorite book. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to talk to your parents. Like, clearly they're doing something wrong. But I never felt that they did. You know, I, my older brother slept in front of the television. So we would just watch TV all the time. And I started sleeping in front of the TV. And my parents made a deal with me. And they said, like, listen, you can, you can sleep wherever you want. Uh, you can do whatever you want as long as you get good grades. And I was like, copy that. So uh, I, uh, I gave up my bed when I was in first grade. And I didn't sleep in a bed again until I was in college. I slept on the floor in front of the television. And then I graduated to the couch. Really? And I watched TV pretty much nonstop. I would come home and do my homework while watching TV, and I would, I would sleep with the TV on. Uh, third grade, I was so distraught uh, before going to school that I would, uh, I would cry myself to sleep every night. And the only thing, literally, for months and months on end, but the only thing that would, would like, get me to calm down and would get me through the night was uh, Tremors. I would watch the movie Tremors every night for, I think, about six months straight. Um, you know, like I had two VCRs and we were constantly taping stuff. And, you know, I was illegally copying uh, VHS tapes that from, you know, Blockbuster. The or old school method with one VCR and the other VCR? Plugged into each other. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I got like Monster Squad and everything else, all these things. So I was, I was already, a, I had a voracious appetite for storytelling in that way. And then, but that, with that, with that stupid young author's book, 
uh, was the first time that I think I'd ever written something myself. And I wound up like winning for the county. I somehow won some sort of award. And I think it was because it was a little pithy and my teachers liked it. But even back then, it was my, my third grade teacher, Miss Merriam. And uh, I think it was my second grade teacher, Miss Patterson. Would, they started calling me like, you know, future like novelist and like future writer. And it just sort of stuck. And you, then, I mean, you were absorbing everything, it sounds like, from, from that yeah. point on and into high school and into college. So you didn't really, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but. That was kind of your thing, writing? I was like uh, the writer guy. In fact, well, unfortunately, I, I, it was really my only thing. I, uh, like so many other kids, uh, was a little bullied and a little made fun of. Uh, mm. I, I have only myself to blame. I also ate whatever I wanted, and uh, let's just say I was a little on the heavy side. Uh, but, That's not uh, on you. And I was also very big-hearted, a little romantic. You know, I wrote love letters to the most popular girl in school, and then... Everyone in school found out, and I embarrassed myself in front of everybody. And another year, I had a uh, pretty much the worst, uh, let's just say, bathroom incident you could ever possibly have uh, in the middle of the cafeteria. Again, standing up in front of the entire school. Uh, so a few, I would say, a series of unfortunate incidents, which I will not elaborate on, uh, wound up uh, uh, leaving me uh, home alone. I had uh, pretty much no friends for a little while. And my parents, uh, God bless them, did what I can only imagine must have been you know, something sad for them, for, for two parents to do. But at the time, I, I, I loved it. They felt so sorry for me that I had no friends and you know, wasn't playing sports and was just sort of wasting away on the couch. They bought a word processor. We, we were not quite, you know, at the place to get a computer yet. We got a brother word processor, one of those ones with the black screens and the gold text. Uh, and that's it. Oh, and they, yeah. They set, up, they set up a little desk for me, and they were like, you like to write, right? Like, we know you're like a writing kid. Like, maybe like this will be something that can occupy your time. Uh, and it was. I started writing really terrible, like, fan fiction uh, sequels to, to, like, the video games that I played at the time, like Final Fantasy VI and, and stuff like that. And then I, I wrote uh, a ghostwriter uh, novel, you know, like, like the, you know. The, your version? Yeah, my, my version. And then I wrote one based on the Gargoyles cartoon. You know, it's still one of my favorite ones from back in the 90s. And uh, I eventually graduated to doing, like, original stuff. I wrote a, I wrote a novel called uh, Armageddon. It was 150 pages, single-spaced, uh, size 12 font. Uh, wow. It's it called Armageddon. It came out a few uh, – <laughs> it came out. <laughs> I wrote it a few years before the movie Armageddon came out. Little secret, guys. There you go. Newsflash. It, it was about a civil war on, uh, on Mars, like a Mars colony in the future. I wrote, a, uh, I wrote a fantasy novel, which was terrible. Uh, and I, wrote a, I got halfway through a sequel to both of those. But my point is, is I, I, just, I started writing. I was writing like voraciously. And at the time, I thought I kind of wanted to be a novelist. But it was really, um, it was my relationship to television, particularly. In like, like the mid to late 90s, so while I was in like middle school and high school, you know, again, like a, I was kind of friendless, but I, I became such a huge fan of The Simpsons at the time and Seinfeld. That I was going to say some great shows of the 90s. That, that frankly, I, like, I kind of developed like a sense of humor and like, a, you know, I could finally like be self-effacing and sort of, you know, kind of learn, learn to, uh, to be a, a functioning adult kind of uh, based off those shows. And at the same time, you know, I got really into ER and The X-Files, particularly Star Trek Next Generation, a bunch of these shows. Homicide Life on the Street, actually, you know, which was shot in Baltimore. Um, I got super into these shows, and to the extent that I, I was so deeply emotionally invested in them, it was like uh, the same investment that I had with my favorite books. You know, I remember bawling 
uncontrollably when Sherry Stringfield left in the second season of ER. And, uh, and George Clooney tells, um, tells Mark, uh, or Anthony Edwards' character, it's like, you know, go tell her how you feel before she gets on that train. And he runs across town, and I'm just crying uncontrollably. Uh, and then, you know, he gets there, and he's like, I love you. And she's like, I love you too, but I'm, like, I'm leaving the show. I'm on the train. I'm already on my way out of town. It's too late. Uh, you know, and I, was, I was devastated, but I, I remember that and, you know, and a few other moments of TV shows in the 90s that each one sort of was chipping away. And then by the time Buffy the Vampire Slayer came along, which was, and probably is my favorite show, um, I was in. I was like, you know what? This is what I want to do. Like, I want to uh, write for television. I didn't want to be a novelist. I wanted to be a, a screenwriter and a TV writer specifically. I, for uh, me, I, I feel like Buffy was the first um, television show based off of a movie. It, for me, that's, that's how I remembered it, um, that I thought really did it well. Yeah. Well, I... I remember seeing the movie. I saw it again by myself <laughs> in, the, in the movie theater back when it was probably like 91 or 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents would just drop me off at the movie theater and I would go from theater to theater, like seeing whatever I wanted. Um, but I remember seeing it and I didn't like it very much. You know, I didn't respond to the tone. You know, Paul Rubens like, you know, dying for like 30 seconds while the camera was rolling. I was like, what am I watching here? You know, wasn't a Rutger Howard fan. I was. I enjoyed I the concept though. I mean, I. I, I love the concept. Um, they're right there with you. And so, but when the, when the TV show came around, you know, I was one of those kids who subscribed to Entertainment Weekly early on and I'd bring it to school and, you know, studied Ken Tucker's reviews, you know, voraciously and was all about the schedule. You know, back in the day, the newspapers in the nineties, before the internet, really, when they wrote it, you, you would get that, that section every Sunday, the, you know, the green section or whatever yes. they were called that would have the whole TV schedule for the rest of the week, you know, printed out in big double wide uh, paper, uh, you know, as a pullout section in your newspaper. That thing was like my holy grail. That would come every week and I would bust out like the highlighter and the pens and I was like getting it going and I was, I was super excited. This was before DVRs, before, you know, we had cable, uh, what is it, like digital cable guides It was and also stuff. before the set timers and stuff. You kind of had to exactly. be there to, to hit plan. record. And, you know, you couldn't just sit on only fool's turned to the TV guide channel or the preview guide channel and sat there and waited for that scroll to come through and tell you what was on. You know, you're like, you have, if you had that thing, you were unlocked. So I was, I was always ready. And I remember reading about Buffy and I, when that came out and I was like, I'm not going to watch the show. I didn't like the movie. I finally caught an episode almost by accident. It was season three. I was going to say, so you, you, you did hold out. It was, I want to say it was probably episode 20 out of 22 in season three. It was called The Prom, if you remember. Oh, classic episode. I, I had never seen it before. I actually, I remember I finally decided to check out Buffy because I had read about a new show that was going to be on the fall. It was called Angel. It was a spinoff of Buffy. Mm-hmm. And I was so taken with the concept of the vampire with a soul who was going to start his own detective agency in Los Angeles. I was like, I love this show. I'm going to watch it. Like, I'm, I'm super in. I guess I need to see an episode of Buffy first to try to get my bearings. So I tuned into The Prom. I'd never seen the show before. Familiar enough with the with the concept. And then by the end, if you remember, spoiler alert for a show that aired 20 years ago, um, you know, Buffy has inexplicably because it was played by Sarah Michelle Geller had also been an outcast, you know, kind of like myself or like so many of us in high school. Uh, no one, you know, really got close to her. No one really knew her. She kind of walled herself off, you know, in a way that's, that's usually so often in those situations, you sort of, we are the architects of our own uh, isolation. And, you know, she just had kind of, never really been maybe appreciated by the other kids in school. Maybe they didn't know what she was doing for them, saving really the world 
uh, saving their lives over and over again. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. It was never really clear. And in that prom episode at the end, uh, Danny Strong uh, gets up on stage and he's like, you know, we're going to give out a special award. We've never given out before. And he gives a little speech about how, like, none of us know you. None of us, you know, really took the time to get to know you. But we all know that, like, it's a weird town and maybe, like, we wouldn't be alive anymore if it wasn't for you. And so they give her a little umbrella uh, that says class protector. And, you know, she comes up on stage to receive it. And it was super moving. I'm, I'm in tears. I've never seen the show before. I, I lose it. I'm, on, I'm, already, I'm already just a wreck. And then Angel comes. And the, earlier in the episode, you know, it's the prom. Buffy's never been to the prom. She just wants Angel to take her, but Angel breaks up with her in this episode. He says, I've got my own show this fall. I have to go to Los Angeles. I have to leave. Like, and also your mom came and told me that I'm no good for you. You know, kind of like Twilight would later trade on. Like, I'm not going to grow up. I'm not going to change. Like, but you're going to grow. You're going to become a different person. Like, you know, we, we shouldn't be together. And so because he loves her, he, he breaks up with her. And, uh, so she's not going to have a date to the prom, and so she was distraught. And who should walk in at the end but Angel? He comes in, and he says, you know, this doesn't change anything. And she's like, I know. And then they dance, and that's the end of the episode. And I was like, first of all, uh, it took me, like, hours to put myself back together again. And then I immediately became uh, the biggest fan of the show. I, I sought out every episode that I caught up over the summer, and it became sort of my guiding light. Um, and for me, it married sort of my interest in genre material, you know, I've, I've been, you know, one of those, one of those people and my interest in soap operas, you know, I grew up also on like all my children and, and stuff like that. And, and that show kind of married it together in a way that nothing else really had at that point in time. And I just loved it. See, I guys, loved it. Even, even guys enjoy soap operas. Absolutely. You know, I'm a, I'm a big softie. Uh, I don't know if it was because of my, uh, my upbringing or what, but, uh, for me, uh, you know, the only storytelling I'm really interested in is, you know, sort of character first, like emotion first, you know, and you need sort of a relatable conflict or relatable sort of dilemma, uh, whatever, whatever it is, you know, it just it needs to be something that you feel. And uh, once that happens, then you can almost get away, I think, with, with any kind of story, any kind of setting, like anywhere, the farthest reaches of space or, you know, about, a, about you know, kids in high school, it doesn't really matter. But if, as long as as, as long as you empathize with the characters, like that's all that matters. And that's frankly why, why I'm interested in it uh, uh, at all in the, in the whole writing biz. So real quick, fun fact, guys, Danny Strong from Buffy, who Brian just mentioned, was right. also a screenwriter for a number of uh, popular movies, Butler, Mockingjay, Hunger yep. Games, uh, Part 1, Part 2. And, and now he is on Empire. Yes. He co-created Empire. Right. So um, – Apparently, you could be a writer from a number of different things, but yeah. you went to college. That's correct. And did uh, you focus on writing there? I did. Well, I both my parents and my older brother had gone to University of North Carolina at uh, Chapel Hill also. So I already had like an inroad there. So um, it's in the blood. The, that's, that's correct. I was uh, born and raised. But I, uh, I got excited about going and really wanted to go despite my whole family having gone there because – they had just started a screenwriting program there, you know, and at the time growing up and I had begun to look at colleges like NYU or even, even like, you know, Boston, I mean, forget like USC or UCLA out here, they were all way out of my price range. Uh, that was never going to happen. Um, but, but UNC, you know, was a, was, a, was a great deal, public school, good place, you know, good people. And for whatever reason, 
a school in uh, you know in the heart of North Carolina had started a screenwriting program. And the reason why, as it turned out, was that they had a uh, one very influential and uh, and very uh, frankly uh, philanthropic uh, alumni uh, named Michael Piller, who was himself a very successful television writer. That's also a screenwriter. Uh, his big claim to fame had been uh, he took over Star Trek: The Next Generation at the very end of uh, season three, or over the course of season three. You know, that, that show had sort of gone through a ton of changes and creative upheaval and almost didn't make it after two seasons and then three seasons of, of just sort of looking for itself. Michael took over the show in season three, decided, kind of revolutionary at the time, to make the show about the characters. And he sort of announced, you know, like, however we got here, it doesn't matter anymore. From this point forward, we're not going to have an episode of the show that isn't about one of our main characters. And then we're going to just figure out whatever problem of the week, whatever planet, whatever issue is going on. Like it has to be in service of whatever whatever issue our characters are already dealing with. It's going to either force them to confront that problem or put them in a situation where they, you know, have to deal with it in, in a way that they never would have expected or anticipated, and they're going to come out the other side. And that that transformed the show. Uh, he wrote on just on a long weekend. He went home and wrote the season three finale. It's called The Best of Both Worlds, Part One where Captain Picard is assimilated by the Bork. And if, if you watched it, you, you know that that's sort of the, you know, kind of a, a high watermark for the show and for, kind of, I guess, cliffhangers. A pivotal, a, a pivotal episode and, and mark uh, in Picard's life, yeah. And at, at the time, they didn't know if the show was going to live or die. But that episode did so well and it had such buzz, uh, even though they had no idea how they were going to, like, you know, come back and, and do another season – uh, that the show came back and Michael was sort of then firmly put in charge of the show. And the rest is history. From that point on, the show was great. It became the first syndicated show to be nominated for Best Emmy uh, Dramatic Series Award. He co-created Deep Space Nine. He co-created Voyager. Then he left space and co-created with his son, The Dead Zone. Um, but he was a big, proud UNC alumni. And then at the time, I think it was 99 or 2000, donated a million dollars to UNC to start uh, a screenwriting program there. And so I went to UNC and was in the first class, the first sort of run through his screenwriting program. Uh, so I took a bunch of classes, uh, you know, and, uh, and I loved it. It was sort of, I probably would have pursued this as a career uh, were it not for that, but I was fortunate enough to, to go to a school that had a program uh, there for me. So a, a screenwriting program, you learn different things, right? Is it similar? I'm familiar with science programs because that was my background and we, did, we did internships during the summer and things like that did you guys have the opportunity to do uh, writing internships <laughs> well first of all it sounds like you you had a real major and uh, it might have actually prepared you for the real world mine was a fake major and... no it's not a <laughs> so, fake major well, technically i was a communication studies uh media studies and production major and then i was a minor in screenwriting they now i think have a major there but so they they did sort of, you know, there's a lot of film theory and, and that sort of stuff, you know, kind of media criticism sort of stuff that I did. I'm sure there are more actual, like, writing courses now. There was only a few at the time. Uh, I took, you know, my, my senior year, I, I was a year-long course, which was terrific. My professor's name was David Sontag. He was a former uh, writer and executive even for, at CBS for a time. And all you did in that class, there was, I think, six or seven of us, we wrote a feature script. Uh, so, you know, it's about 120 pages in the first semester. And then the second semester, you rewrote the whole thing. And the whole time you're workshopping 
the script and scenes with everybody. And at the end of the class, you have like a staged reading of the script. And it was terrific. Uh, it, was a great, it was a great experience. Really throughout. I had really one regret through the whole process was that uh, there was not a single class at the time that had anything to do with television. Back then, and it's changed a little bit since then, there was still this sort of sense amongst screenwriting, uh, you know, professors and, and even professionals that, you know, to write movies, to write features, to write film is the, is, is the top. And if you can't do that, or if you like need to pay the bills, then I guess you can like slum it a little bit in television. And for me, that was never the case. For me, TV was, was where my heart was. You know, since this was just on the dawn, I guess, of the golden age of TV, I can only assume that it's changed since then. But the one thing that I'm forever grateful to that whole program for is, uh, and, and my university did it, and I'm sure other universities do too, was there is an internship program, like you asked, uh, for typically for graduated seniors, sometimes juniors at UNC. They would... You know, if you could apply and get in, uh, about 15, maybe 20 students a year, they hook you up with an internship uh, out here in Los Angeles, which unfortunately, if you want to write for television in particular, uh, and probably film also, and particularly writing or acting or directing, you really have no choice but to move to Los Angeles. There's a good amount of work being done in Toronto and Vancouver and New York, so you could probably get away with it there. But if you want to give yourself the best shot, you got to come to Los Angeles. If you're a crew person and you know you're interested in in any of the it's called below the line stuff, you know, like if you're interested in set decoration or being camera guy or girl or or anything, uh, you can. There's a lot of different places now. You know, Georgia's huge and Louisiana's huge places where you can work. Chicago, but if you wanted to write, act, or direct. Uh, you kind of had to come to Los Angeles. So the UNC program had internships in Los Angeles. And there was a few different ones. You know, at one at like a VFX house, one at like a camera house, and one I think at USA Network. Uh, there was one at King of the Hill, actually, uh, which I've been kind of looking at, although I wasn't really a comedy guy. There was one internship at The Dead Zone. At the time it was a series on USA Network starring Anthony Michael Hall. It was... Uh, co-created by Michael Piller, again, and his son, Sean Piller. Uh, and it was their company, Piller Squared, and uh, their business partner, Lloyd Segan. So I kind of uh, really uh, kissed all the rear ends that I could uh, at school and wound up getting that very internship that I wanted. So this was back in 2004. I graduated college, and then uh, one week later, I uh, came out here to Los Angeles, and uh, I've been here ever since. I haven't gone back home for more than a week, I think, maybe less uh, uh, since then. Uh, what was that, uh, 12 years ago? So for t- uh, would, you, would you say the rest is history? Uh, the rest is history. Uh, I would. I, I was super lucky. I, there were good people to work for, uh, um, the Pillars. I got hired out of that internship uh, to be Michael Pillar's assistant uh, about, what, six or seven weeks into the internship. And, you know, again, it was a... It's a, uh, it, was a, it was a lesson in, well, first of all, humility uh, is always important, but just trying to make yourself uh, useful. I had a lot of good mentors, you know, other assistants who were there who kind of took me under the wing. And, you know, like the real, the, it's, it's the same as any other business anywhere. No matter what you want to do or where you work, the job is really just about making yourself essential. You want to make it, even if you're just an intern, and all I was doing was, all I was doing was stocking the fridge. I, and I would pick up trash in the parking lot. 
and I would go on delivery runs uh, and, you know, a few things like that, filing and, and all that sort of stuff. I was a gopher. Um, but, you know, little by little, if you do those things well, then they start giving you other responsibilities. And the goal is just you don't want the people who you're working for to be able to imagine what it would be like when you don't work there anymore. That, so uh, I think that worked out well enough for me that after, you know, six weeks or so, there was an opening. Uh, his assistant was going to leave. And they, they liked me enough and I was, you know, plucky enough and willing to kind of, you know, blue collar my way through whatever we needed to do, I suppose, that they said, uh, even though I was wildly underqualified for the job, uh, they would stick on for a little while longer, train me to do the job so that I could uh, take over. So, uh, so uh, that's where I wound up. I became Michael's executive assistant and I worked for him for two years or so. Uh, until he passed away, actually, and then I worked for uh, his company, kind of uh, lived on. Uh, Sean Piller and Lloyd Segan were still both uh, uh, principals in their company. Uh, later, Scott Shepard joined. They wound up producing the show Haven that I went on uh, to work on. So it all kind of uh, you know came around full circle for me. So I, I can't really complain. I, I at times you know I wanted to look and try to move elsewhere you know try to like you know broaden my horizons I was going to work for another place but I was always really happy there they took great care of me you know like I had good people to work for and I was learning a lot my 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 goal I think had been to to go to grad school I, I still at the time had thought I'm going to go to UCLA graduate school to get my graduate degree in screenwriting and that was or USC film school or AFI like I wanted to kind of just make it official um, but I never did I had a job the whole time. So it helped because I was paying the bills, but I was also learning so much on the job because while I was there, uh, that production company I worked for produced three more seasons of The Dead Zone. They did four seasons of a show called Wildfire on ABC Family. We had a few pilots other places, and then we did three seasons of a show called Greek also on ABC Family. Uh, so while I was there, we did you know over 100 episodes of, of uh, TV, and I was involved at every step. I was you know I read every pitch, every outline, every script. I was the person taking notes and all the notes calls with the network and everything, you know. So I had I had a front row seat to I guess how the how the sausage is made. I mean, I you saw learned. from front beginning to end. I mean, you've seen all of it cuz in, in previous conversations we've talked about how you were in the room with the creators of Haven. That's right. You were in the room with the creators of Haven, right? Kind of um helping so, them as well. So those guys, great guys, Sam Ernst and Jim Dunn, first came into that company, oh, it was probably 2006 or 2007 or so, and they developed, and, uh, and the company and them together sold a pilot to ABC, which was terrific. I loved it. It was called Thief River Falls. Uh, it was amazing, uh, and I hope that it still gets made one day, but like, <laughs> the, like so many other pilots, uh, it didn't get made, and then it just kind of went the way of the dodo. But uh, ABC liked well, the working relationship with the guys so much that they were like, bring us something else. And uh, ABC at the time had made you know a bunch of Stephen King miniseries, like The Stand and I think It and everything else, The Langoliers. Those were, had all been on ABC. I guess The Shining, a uh, bunch more, Rose Red, everything. goes on and on and on. Storm of the Century, I can keep going. Uh, but uh, then meanwhile, Pillar Segan had produced The Dead Zone, so they were like, you know what, like, Let's uh, let's just do this again. Let's try to take a, a Stephen King series to ABC. Uh, they wound up acquiring the rights to the book, the Stephen King book, The Colorado Kid, and then uh, gave it really to uh, Sam Ernst and Jim Dunn. And we're like, uh, you guys, uh, 
like uh, let's see what like if you can come up with a show here, then uh, let's do it. And they did. Uh, and I was, yeah. So as you said, I was lucky enough. Uh, they trusted me. They needed someone to take their notes, uh, you know, and uh, get them coffee when they were thirsty. So uh, for a little while, it was just uh, Sam and Jim in Jim. Uh, I'm sorry, in Sam's garage uh, with a whiteboard and their their iMac, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what the shape of a first episode would look like. And it was me there taking notes, uh, and they kind of needed me. I was a little bit of like the Stephen King expert. I'd at the time had read literally everything Stephen King had ever written, and I'd certainly seen every Stephen King movie or TV show. Uh, and so I was kind of the uh, Kingopedia. Um, but uh, it, it was a great experience for me, you know. And the show wound up, of course, not going at ABC, but then Sci-Fi acquired the rights to it. Sci-Fi and Entertainment One Studio, and then a couple years later. Uh, it, it got off the ground there. Uh, and it was great. And I was lucky enough, you know, that all the guys knew what I, I didn't want to be an you know, assistant my, my whole life. And sometimes, you know, when you're an assistant, you can roll, roll up through a company, maybe, you know, move up to the junior executive ranks. If you're an assistant at, say, a network or a studio, you can become a, a manager or, or a director of something there. Or maybe if you're, like I was, at a production company, you can get promoted up there and just become a creative executive, and then all your job is at that point is just to try to read, you know, new material, bring it in, try to develop new material, stuff like that. Those were paths that I, I guess I could have taken, but I was my my heart was set on writing. I was still working on my writing in my spare time, not as much as I should have been, frankly. Um, but uh, that was what I really wanted to do, and and luckily for me, those guys knew it and they supported me. So when Haven got picked up. Sort of the the handshake deal that had existed for a little while was that I should move on to work on Haven specifically. So I left. I quit my job with the company, gave up the gave up the you know insurance package, uh, the benefits, and uh, and really the any, any chance at uh, having uh, long lasting uh, employment, uh, and uh, moved to work on the show itself. So you know at that point, if the show were to get canceled, I, I would have been out of a job. Um, but I was closer than ever to to you know the the brass ring i guess it was what i wanted to do so instead of you know sitting behind a desk and you know manning a phone and you know coordinating schedules and stuff which was great and i wouldn't trade my my years as an executive assistant uh, for anything then i moved on and i became what's called the writer's assistant on the show which is you know an assistant but to the the writing staff and your job you know details can can vary from show to show but you sit in the writer's room basically and uh, and do whatever they need you to. Usually, it's you're taking copious amounts of room notes. You're you know basically just taking down every every idea, every shred of anything that you know the that the professional writers uh, have been who have been hired uh, kind of come up with, and just so that you have it for posterity, or so you can go back through, or you know, and then you a lot of it is you know ordering lunch and all that kind of stuff too. But what you're also really doing is you're an apprentice writer. You're sort of soaking up. You know how it works. You know politically, creatively, like everything. And if you're really lucky and good people work for you, they kind of you know hold your hand and they kind of bring you along. I was also the script coordinator on Haven. This is back season one and season two. That's another job on a TV show uh, and on some shows, uh, smaller cable shows like ours. Uh, they combine that and the writer's assistant job. So it's a script coordinator. Your job is is a little bit more than an assistant job. You're almost more in service of sort of the, you're the liaison between production and the writers. 
every piece of written material, uh, you know, script, a page, an outline, doesn't matter, comes from the writers or from the showrunner to you. You proofread it, process it, you know, so make it that it, it looks okay or it looks like everything else that's come out before, so it's all the same format. And then you're the sole person who distributes that to production, to the network, to the studio, to the producers, to the cast, to everybody. Sometimes it's going out to a couple hundred people. Sometimes it's going out to, you know, four or five people. But the material only ever comes from the script coordinator. They're sort of the, the hub. Uh, and you kind of need someone to be in charge of it because once you start going through revisions to things and changes, there has to be, you know, one central source. If it's everywhere else, it's chaos. But so I was both of those jobs on Avon. It was great. Uh, so I was working pretty long hours. It was, you know, 14-hour, 15-hour days. I was first person in the office and the last person to leave. But I, I was the happiest I'd ever been. I was so close to the process and to, and to the show and to what was going on that uh, I loved it. I loved it. I celebrated uh, every day uh, that, I, that I did that. And, I, you know, I didn't care how long the hours were. You know, I didn't care if I was the one... At the end of the day, late on a Friday night, I loaded up a bunch of scripts and I was dropping uh, hard copies of scripts off on the doorsteps of our network and studio executives because it was too late at night for us to pay for the late rush uh, messengers. You know, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a pleasure. It was a delight. And it paid it off for you because season two, you ended up writing an episode. Uh, it did. You know, I, I learned pretty early on when I came out here uh, that there's to make it as a television writer, there's really sort of two good paths uh, on which to go. You can either really just be a super talented writer, or even maybe you know you're just you just kind of figured out some tricks and some skill, and you just you break in purely based on on your material that your stuff is good enough, you get read enough. Maybe you're a barista somewhere, maybe you're an ad executive, maybe this is your second career because you had been a journalist and you're switching over. Whatever it is, you just somehow get people to read your material and they're like, you know what, you're like, I love this material, we're going to take a chance on you, we're going to give you a job. You can do that uh, or you can work your way up. And maybe it's, you know, because I have sort of a blue collar sort of mentality or whatever, but I sort of, I felt like, I still feel like, you know, like my, my writing was like pretty good but can always be better. I can feel like I, I'm constantly learning. Everything I read, everything I see, you know, I feel like I've, you know, I picked up a little bit more, a little bit more. And I feel like that's, that's a good way to be. But I never had the, the confidence that, like, I, I didn't think I was William Shakespeare, that I was going to be able to put out a piece of material that would light the world on fire. And even then, there's tons of really talented writers who just, you know, bad luck, no break, couldn't get the right people to read it at the right time, whatever, and it didn't work out for them. But I was pretty convinced that I could outwork anybody, that I could earn a, a chance. And I knew that a really good method of advancement, particularly in the television world, is if you work for good people and you've, you've sort of have, have proven yourself as a writer's assistant or script coordinator or both, and maybe they've given you a chance you know, to write like, things here or there. Like I wrote stuff for sci-fi.com and I, wrote, I did some like, web and digital stuff uh, that we were doing at the time. And then, you know, bit by bit, I was able to, you know, begin to pitch some ideas in the room and a couple things that kind of worked. You know, there was a big twist in an episode in season one that I, I, I pitched and it ended up sticking. And it was something I think that really worked in the episode. And you never really take credit for your ideas in the room. You shouldn't. You know, it's the room's idea and that's, that's the way it should be. But I know that the guys who I worked for, you know, felt like I was actually a, a, 
making a valuable uh, contribution to the show creatively. So I got lucky. Uh, and sure enough, uh, that sort of method of, I guess, quote-unquote advancement worked out for me. Because in the second season, I had had my whole spiel worked out. I was going to come to them and pitch them. I was like, guys, I, have, I just want to try to write like, maybe like a, a bit of an episode. Maybe I can co-write it with somebody or I'll write just the, just the story. Uh, but they came to me and they were like, we really want you to write an episode in the second season. Uh, and it was great. Uh, so I wound up writing it was a Christmas episode, if you remember correctly, the I second do. season. And it turned out uh, well enough that I got promoted to the writing staff full on. Uh, so we hired uh, uh, someone else to have my old job as the script coordinator and writer's assistant, and I moved up to what is called a staff writer, which is the entry-level position on any writing staff. Uh, it's sort of you know writer's guild sort of mandated, but you know once I got that job, then I then now that I had that job offer and that I was going to get hired, then that allowed me to join the writer's guild. That allowed me to get an agent, you know, and it gave afforded me so many opportunities that uh, I still have now and. You know, I'm super lucky. I, I, I had wound up on the right show for me. I uh, worked for great people, and, and thankfully we had great fans like yourself, and the show uh, stuck around. Uh, you know, like it, there was a lot of different times where it looked like it might uh, get canceled, but we survived. Uh, we made it six years, which is crazy. And, uh, you know, and I was fortunate enough, like you do on shows, like sometimes, you know, from season to season you can get promoted and kind of move up. And there's a pretty strict hierarchy of positions on television writing staff. So all those names you see on the bottom of the screen, sometimes in the first few cards over black at the end of an episode, those are all pretty like kind of strict uh, titles. There's you know staff writer, and then the next level up from that is story editor. The next level up from that is executive story editor, then co-producer, then producer, supervising producer, uh, co-executive producer, then executive producer. Uh, and at any stop along the way, you can also be called a consulting producer if, you know, for some reason, you know, like they couldn't give you what, whatever title that you should have, you know. So there's, but all those titles all are just sort of functions of uh, seniority and hierarchy. And I was lucky. There, it's kind of like rungs in a ladder that I landed on a great show, great opportunity. I, I climbed a, a few rungs and it's kind of uh, left me where I am now. I mean, you literally climbed from, from the bottom to the top and so Sorry. given that right given that i i have five questions sure Sorry. i'm gonna hit you with please and um let's get your answer and see if that can i'm sure there are many people who are interested in writing and so these five questions are kind of geared to not answer every question that you may have about writing but maybe answer some of the burning questions people sure. have right so do you feel from your experience and you, again you've gone from bottom top do you feel that they need to go to school to be a writer, or can you just go for it? Screenwriting contests, you know, apply jobs here or there. Or do you think there was a benefit to doing a program like yours or AFI or uh, the number of New York Film School uh, programs that are out there? I do think it helps, but I do not think it is a necessity. Um, I think that, you know, I would not have gotten the internship that I got uh, if were not for the, the program that I came up through. Um, but from that point on, it, uh, you know, where I went to school and, and that, you know, opportunity, like, you know, it has, it hasn't mattered anymore. Uh, and for that matter, there's a lot of people out here who are pretty successful writers who came to us a second career 
In fact, there's sort of, uh, I think, a, an adage is that they like you to have some life experience and that kind of you bring in a perspective. Uh, you bring in, you know, something else. You weren't just a career screenwriter. You know, it's something that, uh, you know, I, I sort of sometimes wish that maybe I had done something else for a few years and then came back for it. But no, I do not think that you necessarily have to go to school. And it, I don't know that you necessarily have to, to you know, take uh, night extension courses or that sort of stuff too. Those things exist and they're great, but there are also, there's a, a lot of actually really good books out there. I wouldn't trust any one, but maybe as a totality, you kind of pick up a lot. There's a few really good podcasts uh, that I could recommend. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of ways to absorb it. There's also nowadays, thanks to the internet, there are so many scripts online. Just with a Google search, you could find hundreds of scripts from TV shows, particularly pilots, but also just episodes of a lot of shows over the last 10 or 15 years. You could find thousands of movie scripts, um, you know, the, from now from awards consideration and everything else. They're just, they exist online. The PDFs are there. And reading scripts is the best education for screenwriting that you can have. Uh, you know, read a hundred scripts, read a thousand scripts, you know, like I firmly believe in that Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours to become uh, at anything makes you an expert. Uh, and I think that, that you, you, know, you can do no wrong from just reading scripts and just seeing, you know, what it's like. It's very specific sort of craft. And I think we all have a very innate story sense from having watched movies and TV shows and read books our whole life. It's just about trying to, trying to kind of deconstruct that and figure out sort of the nuts and bolts of that. Um, it's, it's a little mathematical sometimes. It's not always super creative or super sexy, but, but there is, there's, there's a way about it. You know, I used to love, and I, I still do sometimes, I would watch an episode of a show that I really loved and then I would rewatch it, but I would pause at, after every scene and I would draw a grid, you know, like a whiteboard, like you see, like that they do in writer's rooms, a grid with, you know, an, a different column for every act. You know, and every act is sort of broken up by a commercial break and then a little a little line separating every scene. And I would just write down in brief what the scene was, you know, and I would basically by the end of the episode, I would have filled out an entire board. So I basically sort of reverse engineered the episode. And I was like, OK, so this is structurally what it looked like on a whiteboard. And then, you know, I, that helped me sort of break down like what worked about it, where the twists came, the types of twists, like how often we checked in with these characters. Like there are ways to just do it on your own and. And I think that is that does you certainly no worse and maybe not any better uh, than Formal than education. having having a degree. In right. It, too. it just takes time and, and effort, and the, the the tools exist. You just have to go track them down. So then, one of the things we talked about was if you're really into TV writing, you could probably survive Toronto, Vancouver, um, Chicago. You could probably, but ideally, you may want to be in Hollywood and. Um, you know, if you're relocating, especially the cost of living in Hollywood may not be so might might be a little bit of a sticker shock. Uh, exorbitant is the word I would use. It's horrifying. Yeah. Um, which was tough. And I, I was lucky. I moved out of here in 04. Uh, and, you know, the rent for the place I, I'm sure I lived in 04 is probably twice as much uh, now than it was then. Uh, you know, there are, there are ways of defraying the costs. You know, you can, I've had a, pretty, a roommate pretty much my entire life. Uh, and uh, you don't have to live in downtown Los Angeles. You can commute. But there's really no getting, getting around it. Like it is, 
because it's a competitive industry and because so much of it is relationship-based and, and being there in person, it's tough to break in and to, and to have you know, that sort of steady job, particularly on a writing staff, unless you're here. That is a, a bit of a barrier on entry. It's, it's, it's the same as if you wanted to work in the fashion industry. You kind of just have to go to New York. And if you want to be on Broadway, you kind of have to go to New York. You know, like it's, it's, a, little it's, bit, it's a little bit tough. It's fair advice, though. But it's so exorbitant. So kind of plan for that, guys, if you're trying to do it. It's a sacrifice, but well worth it for what you get in return when yeah. you put the work in. It, it absolutely can be. And, and, you know, like those guys who created Haven, uh, Sam Ernst and Jim Dunn, they, uh, speaking of second careers, they owned uh, restaurants. They had a restaurant empire in Minnesota and then decided uh, to pack it up and come here and give screenwriting a try. They had just been doing it on their own for 10 years. And I think it was, gosh, it was 15 years ago now, but they were in their mid to late 30s and uh, came out here. And they were, you know, 40 when they were, I think, uh, an assistant out here and then, you know, got job as a staff writer a couple years later and then wound up creating their own show. You know, like they are, they were a little bit on the late end, but like it, it it is not impossible. But you guys Uh, can write your own story. And, and, you know, but that being said, the blacklist website and a bunch of other, you know, screenwriting contests out there, like they exist. And those, those do pan out sometimes. I'm a little wary of, of anything where you have to pay to, to apply or pay to submit or pay to have someone like read your script you know i think those are often you know sort of snake oil salesmen they're not always but they can be you know so so those things kind of worry me a little bit but there's it's tough there's the best if you want really want to give yourself the best shot like it really does behoove you to to be here and to to know people to make connections to meet people like it is it's not unique to the entertainment industry uh the only thing unique about the entertainment industry is that we all watch and read the same stuff. Hey guys, you- uh, Brian has provided some links that you can check out in the show notes page that could help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the podcast I think I referred to earlier is uh, there's a, there's a bunch of good ones out there. Script notes is pretty well known. It's John August and Craig Mason's screenwriting podcast. Uh, there's a great podcast called children of Tendu. Named for the Dishwalla song, Counting Blue Cars, actually, of all things. But it's, uh, it's a podcast from two writers who I uh, know and love, uh, Jose Molina and Javier Griot-Marxwatch, who have uh, really long, uh, wonderful resumes. Uh, Jose was actually on Haven uh, its first year. And they are basically giving a free crash course online uh, via podcast uh, in TV writing. They go you know, topic by topic, behind the scenes, the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty, the highs and the lows, uh, and the lower than the lows. Uh, but uh, it's terrific. I love it. So many other TV writers I know, you know, who maybe you don't like learn a ton of quote unquote new stuff from listening to it because they kind of are walking you through some of the early steps. But it is still so informative. It's so funny, so heartfelt uh, that I, I love it. I can't recommend it enough. So I recommend it to everybody. I could sell it on street corners. <laughs> Children of Tendu is the name. And, and there are a few others, guys, that you can check out. Um, yeah. But, Brian, before we get to the last section, I did want to ask, sure. right, so some of your Haven counterparts, the other writers, right, you were there the entire season. Um, Nick Parker, who also wrote on Haven, was there pretty much, um, I want to say season three. That's right. On. He came on board as the uh, script coordinator and writer's assistant in season three. Right. And, and then there were some others and some uh, – writers um who left the show and kind of 
went elsewhere. How does it work for writers? Are you on a yearly contract? Are you, uh, is there a set time? Just to kind of give people an idea of how it works. Uh, it's all negotiated, uh, the length of your contract. Uh, for instance, when I became a staff writer, I signed a three-year contract. So that took me out uh, three more seasons of the show. And uh, when you sign up you know, a deal like that, typically you kind of sign your rights away. I, I liken it a lot to a sports team. You know, like we're all aware of like, you know, NBA and NFL free agency and contracts and that sort of stuff. It really works the same sort of way. You sign up with a show. You're really signing a contract with the studio that produces the show. A lot of times you wind up signing a first look deal with them, which means that even if you wanted to write something new or original on your own that wasn't an episode of that show, even if you had like a new idea that you want to go pitch, you have to take it to them first. They get a first look. Um, you know, a lot of times they own your rights for a couple seasons of the show going forward. So you could, you, they could either just, you know, not pick up your option for another season and then you're free. Or you could, I don't, if, if you have a good relationship with them and you get an opportunity to move on to a different show, you can ask very nicely for them to let you out of your contract because you were in what's referred to as first position with them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who have projects in, that they're in first position on, second position on, sometimes even third position on. But that all becomes really important because, uh, you know, if something goes forward and the writer, the creator or actor or director or anybody is not in first position on the thing, it becomes a very scary proposition for whoever's investing millions and millions and millions of dollars on it uh, because they might not, they might not have one of their principal talents. Uh, and that becomes like a, that sort of negotiation uh, is a huge deal. That's that's where agents come in. That's where agencies sort of uh, make their bones. Uh, it's that's why it's really important uh, to sort of the deal structure. But it's it's very much like being sort of a, an athlete on a sports team, except instead you sit in a chair all day and uh, you know uh, just hold a pen instead of uh, basketball. And so for you now, having left Haven, and probably especially for, for Haven fans who may be listening, hmm? what are you up to now? Uh, a bunch of different things. You know, I, I left Haven uh, of, not of my own free will. Uh, Haven uh, ended last year, and so therefore there was just no job for me to come back to. I would have stayed on Haven as long as humanly possible, uh, but it, it carried me uh, very far. So, you know, I'm I'm uh, developing a few things. I've got uh, I've got a few irons in the fire uh, with the company that produced Haven. A couple things of my own, you know, have uh, taken a bunch of meetings. So it's it's a pretty good time. You know, I was fortunate enough to have been on a show for a little while, so I didn't need to move on to something immediately. Uh, I may be soon. So nothing I can, I guess, really nothing that I I'm at liberty to discuss uh, openly because uh, you know everything is sort of always uh, a house of cards or built on sand but uh, I've got a I've got a few things in the works so it's uh, it's been an exciting time. And is that kind of how the life of a writer is it, when you don't have a job you kind of have to keep moving give yourself some options don't uh, bet on one thing? Very much very much because you're always trying to sell something or sell yourself really or both at once. So there's it's kind of incumbent upon you it's it's the upside why uh, I like being a writer and I feel you know sorry sometimes for actors or even directors it's it is the barrier to entry for writers is not huge you can at any point in time I can sit down and you know will myself to try to write something new or something else but if you're an actor or director it becomes a lot harder you have to have some material to perform in or to do what you need to do in you know so so as as ways in to the entertainment industry I still feel like writing is is the best, but I may be biased. I mean, there's a chance. 
yeah. there's a bias, but you also have experience on your side. So, but uh, for me, I was just really lucky that I had such a positive experience in Haven and, and dealing with with people like yourself, like fans. Is I was a fan, and I am still a fan of so many other things, and and really, like I was able to articulate it when when I was finally able to start writing episodes of the show. All told, I think I wound up writing or co-writing nine episodes. And when you're on the staff, you end up, you know, you contribute to everybody's episodes and you kind of have, you know, everyone helps everybody with everything. But for me, I, I felt really validated because why I kind of wanted to get back into it a long time ago to kind of bring it full circle was that the shows that I loved meant so much to me when I was growing up, when I had, you know, no friends. They, uh, they were my best friends. And I just wanted to do something and work on stuff that meant that much to other people. Like I kind of wanted to like give back in a way. Like I, that's what I was sort of looking for. And uh, and I, we had that with Haven. There, you know, we had the best fans. And you know, as long as we didn't upset you guys too much, uh, I, I think you were, you know, at times like at least the the relationship, you know, was was very reciprocal. And, and I felt like I had sort of achieved that, and that, that was a great feeling. And that's all really that I'm looking to do down the road, too, is I just kind of want to, to try to put out stuff that people feel about the way that I felt about the, my favorite things, too. Yeah, and you definitely provided that feeling for myself and for a number of fans. <laughs> and um, you are definitely a fan favorite for Haven folks because you answered the questions. You gave that behind-the-scenes look. Um, before we wrap up, one last question. What is one thing you would recommend to someone who's chasing their dream? Wow. Uh, no matter what the dream is. The, uh, the one thing that I would recommend, and this is sort of, uh, this would be the, the subject of my, of my seminar, if I were ever to give one, uh, would be uh, hard work. I really honestly believe that uh, especially nowadays, that there's a lot of people out there. I don't know whether it's just a wave of entitlement that has sort of taken over our society, or if it's just that people sort of are just used to instant gratification. We, or maybe it's that we're all told that we can all do whatever we want, and so when that doesn't necessarily prove to be immediately true, everyone gets really frustrated. But there's a sense of of that people just feel like you know they're automatically good enough or automatically deserve to to have. Whatever they want to have, whatever dream it is, they think they're just going to get it. And and I believe that you can get it, I've, but I believe that you have to work for it. And I think that you have to go get it. And the good news about that is that there are so many people out there who aren't willing to do that. And I really think, I, uh, honestly, I'm, I think I'm living proof, and there are so many people who are, that I was just able to outwork enough other people and work hard enough to to achieve my dream. And I think... You know, I'm, I have to keep working at it now uh, to to stay there or to grow it, and I think that's true of anybody. I really think that if it's, it may sound like a cliche, but I really think that the hard work is undervalued nowadays, and that you may not be as as good as somebody, you may not be as talented, as fast, as tall, as short, as sharp. It doesn't matter. You can outwork anybody, and I honestly believe that. That's fantastic advice, guys. Go start working. That I mean, there you go. That's that's all you gotta do. There you go, Brian. Thank um, you so much for being on the show. Such a treat, and I love it. It was such a great episode, especially for number fifty. Oh well, thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. Honor to be number fifty, and uh, I hope I get to talk to you again soon. 
Guys, I just have to say thank you once again to Brian Milliken for coming on the show and sharing his story of how he went from dreaming of becoming a writer to becoming a writer. And it was a wonderful journey that we got to hear. We heard some great advice. Brian and I were talking after the recording had stopped, and one of the things he wanted to share on the episode, which I'll share now, is people want to work with people who are nice. He wanted to let you know that. So not just work hard, but remember that people want to work with people who are nice. So the idea being, be nice, you know? As you're chasing your dreams, don't be that person who's running over people, throwing others under the bus just so that they can get on top, okay? People see that, and it's not going to work for you as well as you think it will, okay? So kindness, gentleness, genuineness, you know, that's what people want to do. People don't want to work with someone they can't trust. People want to work with people who are nice and honest. So do that as you chase your dreams, because that'll get you further than any other type of dream chase. All right. Now, the links that Brian has mentioned on the show, as well as a few others that he provided, can all be found on the website on the show notes page at chasingdreamshq.com slash episode five zero. So you don't know this, but fun fact, this is like take number 21 of recording this outtake because I've been trying to find the perfect way to say thank you. And, you know, I've flubbed it all the time. I say too many words. I ramble. So I'm going to try and keep this one short. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being you and allowing me to chase my dream of helping others chase theirs by supporting the show and being awesome and just being who you are. I hope to continue what this is. I hope we have a thousand more episodes because that means that there are going to be a thousand more dream chasers that I'm going to be talking to. So you guys keep doing what you're doing. Listen to what Brian said. Work hard. Listen to what all the other dream chasers and my friends who were on the show have said, and just start. Do what it is you want to do. It doesn't have to be a full-time thing. Take small steps. Big things will happen. You'll be surprised. Just do that, okay? So that's it. I'm not going to start naming people because I'll get in trouble, and then it'll be take 22 or something like that. So thank you once again for everything. I hope we will continue to serve you and be a resource for you. And if we can help you, let us know. And until next time, guys, keep chasing. Nailed it. Thank you so much for listening to Chasing Dreams. Amy would love to connect with you and hear all about your pursuit of chasing your dreams. Connect with her on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram via at Chasing Dreams HQ. Or you can find Amy on Twitter at AmyJ21. That's A-I-M-E-E-J-2-1. Be sure to visit headquarters over at ChasingDreamsHQ.com for more inspiration, motivation, and resources to help with your own dream chase. We hope you'll join Amy next week. And until then, keep chasing. Chasing.